0: Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll read from verse number 4 down to the end of the chapter, verse 14. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou my son this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his, his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit in my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them, who shall be heirs of salvation. And that's our text this evening. And what we have here is a continuation of the theme that we spoke about at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, which is the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this section, it is the superiority of the Lord Jesus over angels. Now, you might wonder of what significance or importance is that subject? Perhaps that's the kind of subject you might think could be covered in one verse instead of ten verses. Why such a section to establish this truth that the Lord Jesus is superior to angels? Well, there's a lot of things said about angels. I looked some of them up today and noted them down here. For example, one uh, of the websites I looked at called beliefnet.com says this, that everyone has a guardian angel. But you have to find out who it is, so you can call upon him or her when you need them. And that idea of a guardian angel is a commonly held idea, even by people who are not Christians, and they think that there is a guardian angel out there. It's a common term. It's a common term. So, how do you find out your guardian angel's name? Well, that website suggests the following: that you go into a trance. I like think some of you might be shortly. You go into a trance and you try to find the name. One, one girl, she wrote about her experience. And this is genuine. This person said that her guardian angel's name is Samoya. I think that's how you say it. S-A-M-O-Y-A. And as she was meditating, she could hear soft humming noises and feel someone putting their hands on her shoulders. And she knew immediately it was this guardian angel who handed her a book with her name on it. She's never felt so safe and a loving presence, which sounds very weird, but that's someone's experience that they've published, Guardian Angels. Another website uh, claimed to have information about which Archangel is on duty each day of the year. So they ask you to type in your date of birth and give you personal details, and then they'll consult with God's heavenly staff chart and tell you the name of the particular angel. To pray to that's in a website called angelhaven.com, and there's millions of that in the internet, loads of these websites, and from the sublime to the ridiculous. And it just shows that there is an interest in angels, and there's a lot of misinformation there, even amongst Christians, about what the Bible teaches about angels. And again, you might wonder, Well, we don't believe that kind of thing, hopefully. Well, why then? spend so much time speaking about this subject well on a more serious note in the context of the book of Hebrews it's a very important point that the writer is going to establish at the beginning of the book one author said this in order to show that God's New Testament revelation in his son is superior to the Old Testament revelation at Sinai the author cites evidence to show that the son is superior to to the angels who were the mediators of that old covenant, the means by which God actually delivered the law to men. And so the Lord Jesus is superior to angels and the new covenant, the New Testament is superior to that through which through the, came through the angels. Now, angels are an important subject in the book of Hebrews. They're mentioned 12 times in this section from verse 4 down through to chapter 2 and verse 18. And the Jews were very familiar with angels and the role of angels in the Old Testament. They were those, as I mentioned, invisible intermediaries of that Old Testament, these old covenant promises that God made, including the giving of the law. For example, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, Paul referenced that very thing and speaks about the law and says that the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, again, um, As Stephen is preaching he says this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers he received living oracles to give to us and so there's an acknowledgement that in the Old Testament angels were active in the giving of the law to these ancient uh, people the people of God. So when we come to the book of Hebrews in chapter one, we've seen in the first three verses, the first four verses, really, seven statements about the superiority of Christ and the superiority and the supreme revelation of God in Christ. We saw that last time. Now you come to this section and you get number seven again because you get seven Old Testament quotations that are going to establish the superiority of Christ over angels. The Lord Jesus is not just another angel. He's not even the best of the angels. He's not even just the most supreme angel. He is significantly different from angels, and by being significantly different, is superior to all angels. Now, in our context, this becomes most important when you come up against uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, who are teaching huge error in relation to the Lord Jesus and angels. And this is one of the key areas of error that jehovah's witnesses teach so it's good to know this now the jews they were going back as i mentioned last time to these old testament things these christians who had a jewish background so they were they were falling back they were going back they've been attracted back to all of the things around about judaism and paul deals with that in the book of galatians and in the book of colossians as well and speaks about the worship of angels But in our day, the Jehovah's Witnesses are the closest to that. And I looked a wee bit uh, today about the Jehovah's Witnesses and they teach that the Lord Jesus is a God and he's a mighty God, but he is not God Almighty. And they teach that the Lord Jesus was created actually as the Archangel Michael. And they say that the Michael of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. It's the same person. That's what they teach. So they hold to a relatively high view of Jesus, but they don't hold to the biblical view of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, I went on to JW.org, which is their fabulous web presence, I've got to say. But on that, this is what is uh, stated. I just cut and pasted it. God's word refers to Michael the archangel in the book of Jude. This term means chief angel. Notice that Michael is called the archangel. This suggests that there is only one such angel. In fact, the term archangel occurs in the Bible only in the singular, never in the plural. Moreover, Jesus is linked with the office of archangel. Regarding the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 states that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a commanding call with an archangel's voice. Thus, the voice of Jesus is described as being that of an archangel. This scripture, therefore, teaches that Jesus himself is the Archangel Michael. So that is what the Jehovah's Witness web presence explicitly states. That's their position. So they have a wrong view of angels. They put the Lord Jesus as the Archangel Michael, and therefore they are diminishing what the Bible teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that would be the kind of most prevalent area in our day of error that this teaching here in this chapter would combat that the Lord Jesus is not the Archangel Michael, he is superior to every other angel because he is distinct from them as well. So we're going to see that. So seven scriptural Old Testament references will establish that, and by so doing establish five main points about the Lord Jesus being better than angels, and we'll come to these in due course but look at verse number four as he begins to establish this argument that flows down from verse four down to verse number 14 he says in verse four about the lord jesus so we've had the seven glories of christ in the first three verses then he comes to this being made so much better than the angels now the esv has a different emphasis in their translation which is better it says this having become Having become, rather than the authorised that I've just read, which says being made. So having become is more accurate. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ always was. But he became better than angels after the cross and in his exaltation. This is the incarnate Son of God that we're meeting here in chapter 1. And at one time he's been made lower than the angels and he has received a name that is greater than the angels and he's going to show us in these verses what that name is and how it is better than the angels. So being made, better translated, having become so much better than the angels. Why? Because he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, what does that mean? So this is the beginning of this argument. He has obtained by inheritance a more excellent name. Now, we've seen in the Bible class before that when the writers in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, refer to someone's name, then they're referring to their character They're referring to what that person is. The name is descriptive of that. The name signifies that. It's not just a tag. It's not just an identifier, uh, something to say to identify the person. It speaks to that person's character. It speaks to who that person is in terms of their essential character. One definition is that the name signifies the essential character of a person in himself and also in his work. So if you take that definition, put it into the text, the Lord Jesus is so much better than the angels, he has become so much better than the angels because he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name. So his name, his character, his work has given him this status in contrast to those angels. One writer said this, it's an amazing thing that is being stressed here, that the Lord Jesus Christ has earned the right to receive this inheritance by his obedience, in his suffering, in his exaltation, the incarnate Son of God. And that's going to be stressed throughout the book. In Hebrews 5, verse 8, the author says this, that although he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And he goes on to argue that he purchased us through his work. So all that comes by way of inheritance through the redemptive work of Christ, all that comes to him, all that he receives, all that that name entails is such that he is greater than the angels. None of the angels obtain any of that. Now, angels are referred to as sometimes sons of God in the book of Job and believers are also referred to as sons of God, but no single angel or believer is ever referred to as the Son of God, and that's the name that's going to be emphasised in this chapter. That title belongs uniquely to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the name. He's the Son of God. He's incarnate, and as such, he obtained an inheritance in his exaltation after his suffering, and it's so much greater than any angels. Let me give you another couple of quotes. Jesus became superior to angels in the sense that when he was raised from the dead and exalted and sat down at the right hand of God, he was publicly acknowledged in power and glory to be the Son of God. Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 4. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, he didn't become the Son of God, but he was declared to be. He was demonstrated to be the Son of God. The point is, according to that writer, is that at the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, God the Father publicly acknowledged and declared that Jesus, despite humiliation, despite the lowliness of his earthly life, is truly the unique Son of God, worthy of all the inheritance and prerogatives and dignity that belongs to the Son who is incarnate. Now, that might be a lot to kind of grasp, but we're going to see, as he quotes these Old Testament scriptures, how he unfolds that. So the Lord Jesus is not just an angel. He's not even the greatest of angels. He's obtained a far greater name than any angel could possess or does possess. He has been declared to be the Son of God. And so the one who was made for a little while lower than the angels in his exaltation, sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high, is far greater, far, far above any of the created angelic host. Now he demonstrates this. So let's look at how he demonstrates it. The first quotation in verse number five. Now there is our word at the beginning of verse five. We've seen this in Bible study before, that your link words are so vital in the flow of argument and thought. So it's sitting there on the surface of the text and you can use these linking words to establish the flow of thought. So here it is, in simplicity, you have the word for. And at the beginning of verse four, you have the word being. And so you just use these link words to establish your flow of thought. <coughs> you can get a kind of a diagram in your mind of it. So in verse number four, being refers to the person that's already been spoken about in the first three verses the lord jesus christ being made or having become so much better Then in verse number four for so here's here's an explanatory statement here's what is going to justify that statement in verse four for unto which of the angels said he at any time So what has been said in verse 4 is now going to be justified in verse number 5. Here is the basis for that statement. So the basis is an Old Testament quote from Psalm 2. Now that's a messianic psalm. If you go back and read Psalm number 2, you then understand that that psalm is referring to the Lord Jesus ultimately in its fulfillment. So the Messiah has been spoken of. For unto which of the angels said to at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now in that psalm, psalm number 2, this verse is quoted, and by the way in the psalm it's preceded by a statement that doesn't exist here, I will declare the decree. <coughs> That's because in our text, the focus is on the Lord Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. That is the Son of God here upon earth as a man and then exalted as a man. It's not the eternal sonship of Christ that's in view. So what is this verse speaking about? Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. It's almost a bit vague. What does that mean? Now again, the Jehovah's Witnesses will say this verse establishes what they believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is not the eternal Son, he's not eternal at all. They would say that there was a point when the Lord Jesus began his existence, and this verse is referring to it. This day have I begotten thee. So on the surface that looks correct, but it's not correct. The reason we know it's not correct is that this verse is quoted by the Apostle Paul as he preaches in the book of Acts in chapter 13. So if you were to turn to Acts chapter 13, you would see a sermon that's being preached. And in that sermon about the Lord Jesus, Paul says this in verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. So it's the resurrection of Christ. As it is also written in the second psalm, which is interesting that we then have a confirmation that the psalms are in the right order that we have them in our Bible, because... Paul referred to the second psalm. So the second psalm says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So the apostle Paul in his preaching refers to the second psalm and he's preaching the resurrection of Christ and he explicitly says, this verse in that psalm is fulfilled when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. So we're left in no doubt what this verse is referring to. Scripture is interpreted Scripture. So when it's quoted here in the book of Hebrews, verse number five, unto which of the angels said to you at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, it's referring to the resurrection and the subsequent exaltation of the incarnate son, who was here in lowliness, made a little lower than the angels, raised, ascended, exalted, and at his resurrection, God says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. It's referring to his resurrection. F.F. Bruce in his commentary says that and says, He who was the son of God from everlasting entered into the full exercise of all the prerogatives implied by his sonship when after his suffering had proved the completeness of his obedience. Remember he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was raised to the father's right hand. Woos says this, Kenneth Woos says that the messianic references to the son's resurrection, Acts 13 verse 33, and to the declaration of the father with reference to the character of the son as the son of God from Romans chapter 1 verse 4. This declaration being substantiated by the resurrection of Christ. So here's the first quote that establishes something unique about the Lord Jesus that is not true of any angel. It's never been said of an angel. God has never said to the archangel Michael, he's never said to Gabriel, today you are my son. This is the day that I have begotten you. Never said that. You see, there was a new beginning at the resurrection of Christ, something new. The Lord Jesus, now raised from the dead, a resurrected, ascended, glorified man who is the Son of God and he has been acknowledged as such and no angel has ever been acknowledged as such by God. That's the first quote. Then there's another quote that establishes the same point, the unique name, the Son of God in all his uniqueness and his resurrected and ascended glory. In verse 5 he says, and again, now, again, very simply in the English text, you can see that this is not a new point being established, but this is a second quote to establish the same point because he says, and again. So, and again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So here you have a quote from Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, which was a prophecy to David in relation to his son. Probably a quote in relation to Solomon. But this is a prophetic quote in relation to David's greatest son, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's one of the titles of the Lord Jesus. You remember he's described as the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so David's son, his greatest son, is actually the Lord Jesus Christ, not Solomon. And so the quote from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 by the Spirit of God is demonstrated to ultimately have its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So again, here's an establishment of that same point, that the Lord Jesus is the unique Son of God demonstrated by resurrection proclaimed by such after his resurrection and always glory as the incarnate resurrected son and uniquely so and god has said to them today you're my son this is the day that i begotten you and he's also said i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son so the messiah of the book of hebrews is the son of god yes by eternal generation eternally the son of god he is also the son of god seen in his incarnation and he's also the son of god seen in his resurrection and exaltation and so he has inherited a better name now it's also interesting you then come to verse number six and in verse number six he says this and again now this is where the theologians start to debate And there's two options in the text about this expression and again. And I'm not a theologian, so I'll give you both ideas. But let's first of all come to this expression, first begotten, that appears in this verse. So in verse number six, you've got another quote. Here's the third quote. And it's a quote again from the Psalms, this time Psalm 97 and verse number seven. And it's a quote about the worship of Christ by angels. So you have his name. Unique name, the Son of God. Now we're seeing that angels worship him, not the other way about. So the one who's worshipped by angels is superior to angels. Now, the Jews have not been surprised at all by this because angels have always worshipped God and they have always worshipped the pre incarnate Son and now they worship him as the incarnate Son. He is described as the first begotten. So it says, and if you follow this carefully, it says, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, what about this expression, first begotten? I mentioned this at last night, but here's why I mentioned it at Wishaw, because this was in my mind. This idea of first begotten is a title. And it's a title that you shouldn't just flip and firstborn does not mean born first. Now, you might think it does, but it doesn't. And um, we'll see that in a moment. This is not to do with chronology. So it doesn't mean born first. It has to do with a position. It has to do with a title. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Lord Jesus is described in this way. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, that cannot mean... He is born first. Even those who teach that the Lord Jesus Christ had his existence, as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, beginning at Bethlehem, he evidently wasn't the first person born into this world. So it can't mean firstborn in the sense of born first. It's an expression that speaks about priority, it speaks about position, it's a title. And it usually was held by the son who was first born into the family. That's usually who held the title, but not always. It could be given to another and was an occasion in Scripture and Old Testament families. So this is not a description, it's a title. The one who is the heir of all things in the family, who has that position historically, naturally in a family of being the inheritor of all the land, was described as the firstborn. He was chief. He was the most important. He had the dignity and so on. In Genesis 49 in verse number 3, Reuben had that title. And Jacob said about Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity, the excellence of power. But then, when you think about Jacob and Esau, it was flipped. And Esau was born first, but Jacob became the firstborn. So it wasn't to do with chronology, it was to do with priority within the family. One writer says, whereas the term only begotten describes the unique relationship of the son to the father and his divine nature, first begotten describes the relation of the risen Messiah and his glorified humanity to man. So out of all of mankind, the man who is chief in terms of priority and position is the Lord Jesus. He is the first begotten of all creation. Yes, but he is the the chief. That's what it's conveying to us. He is uniquely the only begotten of the Father and he is the first begotten in relation to all of humanity. That's the chief and unique position of the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. So it says, when he brings in the first begotten. Now there are two ideas. The word world, by the way, is not the normal word for world employed here. It means the the, the inhabited earth. So it could read, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the inhabited earth. So this is the earth that's inhabited. So when did that happen or when will it happen? Well, when it does happen, or if it refers to an event that's already taken place, all the angels of God should worship him. Now, the adverb, again, can be placed in two positions in the original language of the Bible. It can go at the front of the sentence. If it goes at the front of the sentence, as it does in our English text, it's just another quote to establish the same thing. Or, as the New American Translation puts it, that the word again relates to the idea of bringing. So when he brings again, I think that's what it's teaching. It's referring to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the first. And whether you think it's when he first came into the world, well, angels did worship him, that is true luke chapter 2 verses 13 to 14 demonstrate that but when he comes again in revelation 5 verse 11 to 12 the whole angelic host in a most remarkable way is going to worship him remember the incarnate resurrected ascended glorified son is going to come again not now in rapture to the sky, but in glory to be manifest here upon earth as a man upon earth. And when he brings him again into the world, the firstborn, all the angels of God are going to worship him. Now, in a sense, whatever view you take doesn't change the point that's been made. The point has been made is that Scripture teaches he doesn't worship angels. He's not the same as angels. Angels are not worshipped anyway but actually the angelic host worships him. So he has a greater name. He's the son of God, uniquely so. And he is worshipped by angels, not the other way about. And that's the second reason why he's superior to angels. So as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that the Lord Jesus should be respected and revered as Michael, archangel, become Jesus, man upon earth, They would, however, get this deeply wrong, in that they do not ascribe him the position, uniquely so as the Son of God. They also do not prescribe him the worship that he is due, uniquely so, because the angels worship him. Then we come to verse number 7, and we have a further quote. And it says, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the sun. So you've got two quotes here, verse 7 and verse 8, which are linked by this contrasting word, but at the beginning of the sentence uh, at the beginning of the sentence in verse 8. So you have a contrast. Verse 7 speaks about the angels. Verse 8 speaks about the sun. And the contrast is the point. The contrast is this, that Christ is the master of these angels. He not only created them, but he directs them. They serve him. They don't just worship him, they serve him. So again, he's building this argument. Notice in verse number seven, it says this. And of the angels, he says, now we've got a quote from the Psalms again, Psalm 104 this time. But the possessive pronoun here, together with the word make, indicate two things. Number one, he created them, and number two, they belong to him his so he made his angels that's the idea they belong to him they serve him they do his bidding and he has made them so that they are able to serve him in the way that he wants and there's two ways that he's made them here he's made the his angels spirits which is the word for wind and he has made them a flame of fire so they are suitable for the tasks that he assigns to them sometimes there is the idea of a flame of fire and terrible havoc and judgment and vengeance you remember 100 was it 85,000 soldiers outside the walls of Jerusalem slaughtered in one night who did that that was a work of angels and they came like a flame of fire amongst these people and yet there are other times that they appear like the wind, which is that their presence is completely unseen, but their influence is felt. You remember the Lord Jesus? He speaks about that uh, in verse number in, in, in John in chapter 3 when he spoke about Nicodemus, uh, and he speaks about the wind blows for it lists and so on. So you've got the idea of an unseen presence, and sometimes the angels are like that. So he creates them to serve him, and they're created in such a way that they are suitable for the service that they are sent to accomplish. That's the idea. One writer said, God makes them according to the needs of his service, and being such as they are, they are changeable. In Mark contrast to verse number 8, which speaks about the son who is their ruler, who is unchangeable and and is authoritative. He sits upon a throne so you're getting the idea of the contrast. Now this all builds to a very practical point that we'll come to just at the end, but you have to get these building blocks as you build down through the chapter. So he has this unique name in his incarnate glory, he's the son of God, lower than the angels now exalted and has become and received by inheritance a greater name. Secondly we saw that he's worshipped by angels. Thirdly we're now seeing he is the master and creator of these angels and he reigns over them which is the context of the verse eight. His authority is unchangeable over them. It never diminishes. It is always supreme. So that's the emphasis in verse 8, for it says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And the angelic host operate within his kingdom, over which he is authoritative, and his authority never changes. So their authority is not out with his. They're not part of an angelic kingdom that operates as a kind of subdivision of his kingdom. And despite the kind of whole media construct within The film industry and so on that has a whole thing about angels um, and a whole thing about demons going on and has been going on for some time so you've got all these programs about angels good and bad angels which go from the kind of sublime what's that christmas film i can't remember what it's called and you get this really odd angel that's very benign and you know only gives good advice and then you've got the modern day construct of angels which are horrific You know, and so right across that whole um, kind of panoply of angel philosophy that exists out there, it seems that they present it as the angels operating within a sphere of their own authority, within a little kingdom of their own. But actually they don't. Angels are real and they operate under the unchangeable authority of Christ within his kingdom. Now the quote here in verse number 8 is a quote from Psalm 45. And that quote from Psalm 45 is celebrating a royal wedding, probably of Solomon or of another son of David. And it is powerful evidence from the very mouth of Almighty God as to the deity of Christ. Because it says this, Unto the Son he says, Thy throne, O God. So the Son is acknowledged as God. Thy throne, O God. Who's speaking? It's God that's speaking. To the Son, and referring to him as God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. He's the eternal God. He's the eternal king. He's got an eternal kingdom. And that kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. He rules justly. He rules righteously. And in verse number 9, it is extended, for it says this, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So he moves from the eternal sonship and deity of Christ into again this incarnate sonship and sees the Lord Jesus as loving righteousness hating iniquity anointed with the oil of gladness above thy fellows so not only is he God but as a man he's the son of God and it shows us a little glimpse into the heart of Christ he doesn't just do things which are righteous he loves righteousness He hates iniquity. Now, I'm not going to spend time picking that apart, but, you know, it's interesting that where there is true love for righteousness, there has to be true hatred for iniquity. The two don't go together. So you can't genuinely love what's right and also love what's wrong. They're mutually exclusive. And so if you love what's wrong, your idea of loving what's right is false. It's not true. So it's a kind of a reality check for us. And I think that the fellows here have been anointed um, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows is probably angels in the context. Let's come to verse 10 to verse 12, just as we come to the, the end of the flow of thought. In verse number 10, yeah, we have the sixth quotation. So this quotation is taken from Psalm 102. And if you look at that psalm, there's a title of the psalm that says this, a prayer of the afflicted, when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So the psalmist in Psalm 102 is gone through a tough time. And in his weakness and desperation, what does he turn his mind to? It's a great psalm to read, by the way. He turns his mind in his weakness and desperation to the eternality and power and unchangeableness of the Lord as creator. That's what he turns his mind to. The big picture of who God is because in his difficult circumstances his focus has narrowed as it always does with us and his perspective has changed and so God has become small and his problems become great and to reverse that he settles his mind on the attributes of almighty God and God again becomes as he should be greatness thinking and if you've got a great big God then every problem is smaller than otherwise it would seem. That's the thinking. So as part of that, he says that even though heaven and earth perish, God remains. So my problem is history. When I am no longer here, you know, when even the heavens and the earth are gone, here's the big picture. God is absolutely unchangeable. God's just exactly the same. puts our problems into perspective. And like a man throwing away old clothes, God will throw away this universe. This is what he says. Thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hand. They'll perish, you remain. They will wax old as doth a garment. Now, I don't know what you think old is for a garment. Maybe you think it's a year. And if it's a year old, it's old. Maybe if you are some... Females in here, you think maybe six weeks and has to be replaced, or but if you're a man, you probably think maybe six years and you can it's fine. But the idea here is that the garment is worn out, and so it's discarded. Why it's old as a garment, and then as a vesture, shout they'll fold them up. This is what God's going to do to this creation. He's going to literally fold the whole thing up. So what we think is like here forever, and what we think is the big reality of our experience this earth and our context within it and the environment all of that is a very small thing god's going to just take it and wrap it up and like a vesture they shall be changed the contrast is with him thou art the same and thy years shall not fail the Lord Jesus Christ is who is being spoken about here. He's the one who spoke the whole thing into being and he will speak it out of being again. The one who created it from nothing will uncreate it, which is bad English, but that's the idea. And the one who brought it into being will take it out of being. He will fold it up. That's the idea. as a vesture and it shall be changed. And although everything around us will change, he does not change. Now that is not true of angels. They are not unchangeable as he is. He's is the eternal creator of heaven and earth. Well when we come to verse 13 to verse number 14, and that by the way, in verse 10 to 12, in the context of the psalm, is actually meant to be a source of great comfort and trial and difficulty. So let's come to the last wee bit, verses 13 to 14. I know this has been a long kind of uh, journey through this, but when you come to this, you see the conclusion to it. But to which of the angels said he any time, sit on my right hand, this is the ultimate, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the Lord Jesus Christ presently is sitting at the right hand of God the right hand of the majesty and high. So, bear with me. He has a name that no angel has. It was declared at his resurrection. This day, thou my son, this day have I begotten thee, ascended a glorified man who's sitting at the right hand of the majesty and high. There is a man, physically there is a man in the glory. Now, he's unique. There is no other man like him. Resurrected, glorified, physically in heaven today. <coughs> he is unique as to his name. It's true at the moment he has been worshipped by the, the angelic host. That is true. But there's a coming day when he will leave that position that he occupies And he will come again into this world. And that will be a source of unbelievable worship. Why? Because the one who was humiliated lower than the angels for the suffering of death is the one that angels will proclaim and worship as he is recognized in the manifestation of his full glory. The incarnate, resurrected, ascended, and fully glorified man back here upon earth. All the angels of God shall worship him. The one to whom angels owe allegiance, not owe allegiance, the one to whom angels have to give allegiance, they serve him, they were created by him, they are owned by him, and they have been created in such a way that they are able to fulfill the service that he has given to them and gives to them. He is the eternal, unchangeable creator. He sits in a place of exaltation and angels presently. Serpent. And how do they do that? Well, he says here uh, To which of the angels said he time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Well, the answer is. Like No angel has that said to them. No angel is looking forward to that day when he's eight, his enemies will be at his footstool. But Christ is. But in the meantime, what are angels doing? If they're not anticipating that day, then what are they doing? Well, verse 14 tells us what they're doing. And this is where we come in. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister... For them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now we're not going to go into, but if you look at chapter two, verse one, there is another connecting word. It's the word therefore. So all that he's established here in verse four to verse fourteen flows out of what he established in the first three verses the glories of Christ. Then we had this superiority to angels. And then flowing out of that (coughs) superiority, angels, there is, or should be, a reaction. It's the first warning section of the book. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things. So we'll discover this next time, that he's going to come with a very practical exhortation and warning. Where's that based? It's not just him sitting down and saying, look, I'm telling you, it's not just him saying, look, you really need to listen to me. Don't go back to all that Judaistic um, procedure and ceremony. Don't go back to all that. I'm just telling you, don't go back to it. No, He said, look, get in your mind the absolute glory of Christ. Meditate upon the sevenfold glories of Christ stated at the beginning of this letter. And then understand this, the superiority of Christ to the angels and all that's revealed about Christ that demonstrates his superiority and allow those things to be the foundation upon which this exhortation is based. Therefore, he says, there's a very simple point there, which is that if we don't learn the first chapter, there's no basis for the exhortation in the second one. There's no foundation. There's no meat, if you like. It's just an empty type of exhortation. But that's not how scripture comes to us. Scripture always seeks to alter our behavior based upon education, upon learning. So it is based upon what we have learned, then there should be a reaction in our behavior. And that knowledge, that learning is the foundation which means that the change in behaviour will be permanent and not temporary. Because any exhortation, it's only based upon force of exhortation. When the force diminishes with time, then the exhortation loses its strength. But if it's based upon a knowledge and an appreciation of Christ and an exhortation of Christ, that's permanent. And when that knowledge is established, It's a reference point continually for this change in behaviour. So that's that's a kind of common approach in Scripture, and you have it here explicitly. But secondly, notice in verse 14 what angels are doing at the present time. Now, I said the angels serve within his kingdom, doing his service because they belong to him and they are created to be suitable for that service. Now, please don't think that for 2,000 years, angels have been sitting on their wings, so to speak, and just gazing down upon earth, passive and inactive. There's nothing in Scripture that would say that there are myriads of angels, inactive, in heaven, Or in the spiritual realm all around us, which does exist, which is a realm of conflict, most of it unseen. Not so. Are they not all serving spirits who are sent forth? So the one who is their master has sent them forth to do what? To minister for them. shall be heirs of salvation who are those that's us so you might say well in what way do angels serve us we don't really know is the answer to that we get glimpses of their angelic ministry and so when people speak about their guardian angel there's nothing in scripture to speak about having a guardian angel but there is something that says and here it is to say that angels are active For our benefit here upon earth. And I think only eternity will reveal exactly what that angelic ministry has done to preserve us. Sent by our risen Saviour, by our Lord, to serve Him in our lives here upon earth. Things that we would have done, things that we maybe did do, things that we don't know that were going to happen to us and haven't happened or have been caused to happen, we just don't know. But we do know that the Lord is active in our life and we do know that the Lord is not active in a direct way as he was here upon earth, but we do know that he has servants who are actively engaged in his service for our benefit here upon earth. Now you get some glimpses in the Old Testament, for example, in Psalm 34, verse 7, angels are seen as surrounding God's people in order to deliver them from danger. Remember that the Lord puts us into places of testing and always does, and it is said explicitly that he always makes the way of escape for us. I think that is an angelic ministry. That the way of escape from a period of testing so that it is not beyond what we can bear, the Lord will not put us into that situation. He will have his servants create circumstances that are the way of escape. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the seven of Elisha is terrified by the size of the Syrian army surrounding them. Elisha says, don't be afraid, those who are with us are here more than those who are with them. And he prays, oh Lord, please open his eyes that it may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They had no idea. God had sent an angelic army, which was protecting them. They, had, they couldn't be seen. And it's as if he just took the veil off the spiritual conflict that was going on all around him. In Luke chapter 16, for example, angels appear to be involved in the death of God's people because, at least in the case of the poor man Lazarus, he was taken by angels into the presence of God in heaven. In Acts chapter 12, You remember Peter had a direct angelic intervention and God delivered Peter from the prison. How did he do that? He sent an angel who did that very thing. So you can go on and you can see that there are hints of it here and there, but I think that it is kind of hidden from us explicitly for this very reason. We would end up worshipping the angels. That's what we would do. And that's what these people in the book of Hebrews were tending towards, because they had revealed to them the role of the angels in the Old Testament covenant, and they were exalting the angelic ministry beyond what it should have been. It's a natural instinct. One writer said this, remember this as strange and supernatural and encouraging and awe-inspiring as angels may be in carrying out the orders and commands of God, as helpful and strengthening and edifying as their ministry undoubtedly proves to be, Jesus is better than angels. He is superior to angels. He should be worshipped, not his servants. So the focus is not upon the servants of the Lord. The focus is upon the Lord of the servants and that is established here a better name worship by angels the master of angels the god who reigns eternally and the one who sits at god's right hand in the full exaltation of his glory so i know that's a wee bit heavy but that establishes this point that's so vital to reinforce from the old testament that jesus is greater than all angels now we'll come to the kind of practical point in chapter two the warning section which I think is a significant warning section. And by the way, verse number three is often used in the gospel, and there's no problem with that at all. But in context, this is where it appears. How shall we escape? It's interesting where that appears. If we neglect so great salvation, ask yourself the question, who is the we in that chapter? Is it the world of sinners or is it the world of saints? Interesting. Let's just pray. Our Father, we would come again into thy presence. and. We